Welcome to the Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history podcast, a series exploring the rich, nuanced history of Grambling State University, the city of Grambling, and the people who make it. This series is a collaborative project between students and faculty of the History Department of Grambling State University, as well as faculty from the University of Arkansas. The Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history project, has been made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities in partnership with the Social Science Research Council. Additional funding was provided by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Social Science Research Council, or the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Brian McGowan. We are speaking to Terry White. Before we get started, how are you doing today? How's your weather? Well, it's a sunny, mid-70s degree in Cleveland, Texas. All things considered, you're actually not that far away from Grambling. Dallas-Fort Worth is about four hours west of Grambling. Straight on I-20. That's right. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. I have a fun story about that, if you'd like to hear it. You Please do. Please do. Yeah, we'd well, love to hear it. Um, it was 2004, and our family was traveling east on I-20 on a vacation, and it was maybe... I don't know, 11 at night or something like that. And we stopped at a gas station and I went into the convenience store to do something, whatever. And I talked to this this very tall young man at the uh, register and I saw and noticed I'd seen a sign pointing to Grambling. I said, is that Grambling College down there? He said, yes, ma'am. I said, I went to school there. He looked at me and he said, you did not. (laughs) I looked back at him and I said, I did too. He said, you did not. I said, I did too. I said, I participated in that cultural exchange program. And he stopped dead. And he said, my mom participated in that. I said, what was your mom's name? He said, Rose. I said, oh, I remember that name, Rose. She went up to my university at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire the same semester that I was down at Grambling in second semester of 1971. And so I said, you make sure to go home and tell your mom that you met, which I was Terry Peterson at the time. So that's my little story about traveling on I-20 east near Grambling. <laughs> Before we get to Grambling, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, what your family did, stuff of that nature? Well, I'm a northern um, Midwestern girl, so I was born in Minnesota. We lived there till I was nearly uh, nine. Then we moved to Aberdeen, South Dakota until I was 14. And then we landed in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I finished high school and then went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and got my bachelor's degree. My dad, we moved. Dad always got a better job. Or my dad was, uh, we grew up in a very political family. Something that might be of interest to you, in South Dakota in 1962, My dad was George McGovern's state campaign manager for his first bid for the Senate. George won, and then my dad needed a job. Hence, we moved to Wisconsin. Uh, My dad was also Eugene McCarthy's state campaign manager for his bid for the 68 Democratic primary against Humphrey, the Hawks and the Doves. He was at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 68, of course, which was quite a tumultuous affair. And he was the voice that requested that they move the convention to St. Louis due to the police brutality against the uh, war demonstrators, which, of course, they didn't do. Mayor Daly had everything buttoned up pretty tightly there. 
in doing it his way. Subsequent to that, my dad ran in the Democratic primary for governor, the grassroots candidate in 70. He lost, but I was active in all those campaigns. Of course, I was a little girl in South Dakota, but I was probably the only child in the family that was political. So that's kind of the home environment that we had. We were a normal four-kid family. Kind of, we're Norwegian, so we're all tall. <laughs> I'm six feet tall. So uh, it was, you know, we grew up in the 50s and 60s, and it was that life, and I was kind of the hippie girl in college, and that kind of covers that question, yeah, I guess. And, um, what, what was your father's name? Don Peterson. Donald Peterson. I yeah, will have he, to look him up. Sounds like he had a, a yeah. fascinating career. Yeah, his papers were were uh, donated to the Wisconsin State Historical Society. And one of the Wisconsin State Historical Society's uh, magazines that they published, they had my dad uh, at the front. He just he just walked from the hotel as a uh, in opposition to the uh, police brutality going on, and he wound up with quite hundreds of people following him um, as he walked from his hotel to the convention center instead of taking a taxi. It was a mover and shaker. His idea of changing the world was through politics. And um, he was a man that was of impeccable integrity. He's a good man. So once you end up in Eau Claire, why did you decide to go to Wisconsin-Eau Claire for college? Well, because it was two blocks away. <laughs> <laughs> that is a legitimate uh, reason. <laughs> <laughs> so I lived at home uh, while I, well, I had one semester stint of living in an apartment with girlfriends. But I lived at home. There's the university. You can go sign up and take your classes. It's a great university. It's a beautiful town. I know a lot of my high school graduate you know, friends attended there as well. It's a good school. I majored in, uh, got my Bachelor of Arts in English and that was in the throes of the civil rights movement, and I wound up with an emphasis in Afro-American literature, and that's how I wrote my thesis that I sent to you. And then I had a minor in library science. Why did you decide to join the exchange program to Grambling? My parents have always taught us that all people are equal. You know, we may look different on the outside, and we may have different customs or experiences, but inside everyone's the same. So it was really natural for me to participate in a program that was designed to bring people of different backgrounds together. You know, we can read about people of different cultures and struggles, but I have a firm belief that gaining face-to-face -face experiences is what will make a difference to enable human beings to live together in harmony. Dr. Stolting was the husband of my English advisor, and he had also initiated some gatherings on campus where students could come together and share ideas. So I was involved in that as well. So I knew him in that way. And I'm sure through the grapevine, that's how I found out about the program, or maybe my his wife told me about it. I, I really can't remember. It's been 52 years. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure as you know, Dr. Stolting and, and his wife have both uh, passed away. I did manage to locate their obituaries and, and learned a little bit about them that way. It seems as if both of them were, were active in, if not the civil rights movement per se, and they very well may have been active in that too, they were at least active in, in trying to develop a, a more integrated society. Was that your experience with them? Yes. 
and I, I'm sure it was uh, Winifred was his wife's name, Winifred Stelp, was probably the one that inspired me to dive deeper in Afro-American literature uh, for my emphasis and then for my research paper, my final thesis there. Um, she was very much, she was very passionate about that. And given my background, she had a, we, we developed a very close relationship. In fact, even she went down to Alabama, I think, and pursued her PhD. And my parents uh, were vacationing and they stopped to visit her. So that's the kind of relationship that I had with the Stoltings. Um, I was very fond of them. Oh, they, had a, yeah. they had a strong uh, influence on me and they were good people and we enjoyed sharing things together. One of the things that, that has been difficult for me to determine at this point is how this program actually got started in the first place. Do you happen to know? Do you remember anything about that? I have no idea. Yeah. I do not um, know. My, mine was the, only the second group, the initial group was the first semester. And I actually applied for the first semester but didn't get chosen, and but then was chosen for the second semester. I don't know why I wasn't chosen. I don't know. I wasn't offended or anything. <laughs> it just was what it was. Could be the Grambling had initiated it. Yes, and it reached certainly out to could different be. University. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine. That, that just makes more sense to me that it was probably at Grambling's initiative. They may have reached out to an array of universities and there was... I know the University of North North Dakota, and then a university in Illinois, and then in Ohio. Uh, There were only four, at least, that participated in my semester. So that made 16 students that were on campus from the northern states. What what did your friends and family think about you going to Grambling? I think not a thing. Nobody even gave it a moment's thought, I think, except for maybe my mother. She might have worried that her daughter was going to go down, you know, so far away from her. That would be, you know, just that kind of a mother-daughter thing. But instead of flying me down, they packed me, put me on a bus and sent me down there. And we were that kind of family that, you know, they, my parents allowed us, my siblings and I, to explore the world. And I was kind of the adventurer in the family. And so I guess they weren't surprised. Well, my mother did say when I came back I was different, but she never could. By the time she verbalized that, she was much older, and she couldn't really explain what that was. I'm sure, you know, I was different. I don't know how it would be weird if I wasn't different. How about just the logistics of, of kind of being away from friends and family? Actually, I, well, not that far. Uh, I had dropped out from college uh, for about a year and a half, so... I had lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and worked at the uh, university library for a year and a half before I returned to college. So I had been not, that's only three hours away, though. So, but I had been on my own. I, you know, got my own apartment, you know, put furniture in it and paid my bills and, you know, that sort of thing. So I had learned to live on my own. I never, uh, it never bothered me to move away from my family. I don't know why. But I just didn't give it a moment's thought. You know, I just did. You know, I don't remember necessarily missing my family. I I came from a very nice, good family, felt loved and safe. But I was comfortable, you know, stepping out on my own. Did the civil rights movement play into your decision to go to Grambling? I grew up in homogenous communities up in the upper Midwest. 
uh, the towns that we lived in, which were mainly small towns. So Eau Claire is probably 75,000 now, but it was about 30,000, 35,000 at the time. There were no black people. There was not, you know, a diversity. Maybe a few Native Americans, but I don't remember if that was the case or not. So there, you know, there was an opportunity to have those kinds of experiences in my everyday life. But, you know, I was fully aware, of course, that's, you know, in the early 70s and uh, of the civil rights movement, and I followed it closely, but I didn't really have an opportunity to actively demonstrate or protest because there was nothing in my town to protest at that time. But I, you know, I guess I pursued it in different ways. Uh, I did definitely, I was against the Vietnam War and did, you know, had some walk, you know, walks against that. Uh, I'm very much against violence. So uh, when I was in Madison, there was a lot of violence on the campus about the war. Walk, I walked uh, many a times through tear gas on the way to work. I supported the civil rights movement intellectually, but I never had an opportunity to be involved in it, except I consider going to Grambling as being a part of the civil rights movement. Essentially going to Grambling as a, a white exchange student from the North was itself a form of protest? Is that what you're trying to say? I wouldn't say protest. It was a form of, that protest would be the wrong word, a form of learning how to get along together and understanding one another. Okay. <clears throat> that would be my best way, I think, of expressing it. One of the things that I that I found through Dr. Stolting's papers is that he's that is a theme that comes up over and over and over again uh, that he talks about the program as uh, integration mm-hmm. is is an, an was clearly an important motivator for him, and mm-hmm. it's interesting that you know it was an important motivator for you too, as it applies to while you were at Grambling, uh, were you at all active in civil rights or related protest movements, anti-war, etc. So there was nothing of that going on at Grambling at that time. I think this, well, I don't know how new the school was. I think it had been around for a while. It was right in the middle of the country in a peach orchard. Uh, I guess maybe a stone's throw from Monroe, who historically was horribly racist. There were no demonstrations. There were no anything of that going on. There was no talk about uh, Vietnam or anything. Maybe because... I don't know, maybe these Southern students weren't, I don't know, they were just focused on getting their education and bettering their lives. I can't really answer for them, but I don't uh, recall any opportunities on campus for any of that. Do you recall ever uh, spending any time in Ruston? Is that a place you, you went? I probably did, although, you know, nobody had a car. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of money to do this or that. I mean, I had an allowance from my parents. Pretty much, I spent most of my time on campus. What was daily life for you like at Grambling? It's a similar campus life of going to classes, do your homework, going to the library, laughing with friends, going to parties and student apartments or, you know, off-campus places. And that's pretty much the same that I experienced up uh, at the University of Wisconsin. One of the things I remember there is being lonely. Not always, but sometimes. I had a, my guess is that people needed to agree to having an exchange student for their roommate. 
and my roommate was doing her student teaching and she was gone almost all the time. When she was there, she was very nice and polite, but she didn't include me in her life. So I don't know if she was, if it was awkward for her and she just didn't know what to do. I didn't resent her for that. It's just, we just didn't develop a relationship. However, I did make friends with the roommates of the other exchange students and some of my classmates. But there were times when it was awkward, and I think it was good for me because when you're the minority, you, you know, you're the person that sticks out that's different from other people. And um, that's part of the experience, feeling awkward, feeling conspicuous, you know, experiencing that minority thing. One of, the, one of my strongest memories in regards to feeling awkward in the 70s, that program, All in the Family, was highly popular. I don't know if you know about that program. But it was a, a parody. It was poking fun at bigotry. So I was, I was by myself one Saturday night, so I moseyed on down to the uh, uh, common room in our dorm and with those little boxy TVs that were popular back in the early 70s. And the room was packed. And all the girls were watching All in the Family, and there was one chair left in the back of the room, so I sat there. And the program is hilarious, if you understand that it's a parody. But I didn't know if the other students knew that it was a parody. I didn't know if I laughed, I would offend them. It was very awkward. I remember it was so uncomfortable that I finally left because I did not want to offend anybody and I didn't know what to do. Um, had I been at home or all by myself or with people that I knew that understood that program, we would have all laughed hysterically. In, you know, a very strong memory of mine. Another memory I have of a, I stayed home, I stayed on campus on spring break. I don't know why I didn't go home or why my parents didn't send me home. I have no idea. I don't remember that, but I stayed on campus with a handful of other students that they put us in the dorms in the common place. And a friend of mine from UW came down and we were in a car with friends, we were going somewhere, and her name was Jo, and she could not understand what anybody was saying. And I had to translate for her. And I do, And when she said, what are they saying? I can't understand them. I, rem, I don't remember ever having that adjustment with the language, the, the dialect um, in the South, the Black South. But she clearly was having difficulty. Another difference was that I lived at home up north, and, and so I didn't have the dorm life. So the dorm life was new to me. And Eau Claire was a cosmetologian, small community, but you could walk you know, to stores, you could walk to bars, you could walk wherever you wanted to go. Whereas Grambling was set, you know, in a very rural setting, you couldn't walk anywhere. You had to have a car to get rid Even to Ruston, you had to have a car to get there. That was different, which is probably why I stayed on campus almost all the time. And there, were, well, there was some off-campus housing that um, some of the students lived in that I became friends with. We, you know, had that as well. Let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the classes. Obviously, you were, you were there as a college student, so you took some yeah. classes. What were they like? I found that there was very much uh, similarity. Uh, now the, you know, the Grambling was smaller. Eau Claire was a larger 
student population, so the classes at up in Eau Claire were bigger. But um, I love my classes. I am a writer, and I took one of those classes was a, a composition class. I love that class. Uh, my favorite teacher was my reference librarian teacher. She was so inspiring. And the library science department at Grambling was very small. There might have been maybe five or six of us. So that was nice. It was more intimate. And so it was lent itself more to getting acquainted with the other students instead of a big classroom where you kind of, you know, nobody knows anybody sometimes. So that's my strongest memory is that she really inspired me. And I wound up being a librarian after uh, I graduated. And I probably was due largely to her influence. But outside of that, I felt like the teachers were excellent. The classes were great. I didn't find them less challenging or more challenging. I felt them, you know, rather comparable. Do you happen to remember her name? No. Okay. <laughs> Let's ask about the social scene at Grambling. You've, you've mentioned a little bit about it, uh, going to mm-hmm. parties on and off campus and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, you wrote a uh, letter back to Wisconsin. <laughs> Not Pretty feisty letter. A little, little bit of a feisty letter where you, where you were not very happy with, uh, I believe it was Dean Helen Brown. Do you remember that incident at all? Do you remember anything about it? Very, that? very vaguely. Okay. Uh, I, have, I, have no, I don't know where I was wanting to go, but I was pretty mad that I couldn't go there. <laughs> um, you know, it, looking back, and, you know, like I said, my memory is very vague. And you had mentioned in your email that I wasn't the only person that was you know, had that issue. I would just wonder, this is just me wondering out loud, if she was trying to protect us. We were white girls hanging out in the black society, and it's still 1971, and I'm, you know, lynchings were still going on, and that may have been her motivation. I don't have any idea. That's just a guess on my part, trying to protect everybody. Because I will say, I was warned not to go to a party by myself because the previous semester a girl was gang raped i don't know if she was from louisiana or she was an exchange student i don't know who that girl was but there was that risk and i was i never did report this incident but walking down the hall and went into the restroom the girl's restroom put my books down on the counter went into the stall take care of business and came out and there was a great big young black man standing there looking at me i was Terrified, He looked at me, I looked at him, I grabbed my books and got the hell out of there. <laughs> uh, my guess, he figured he'd be hanging from a rope if he did touched his finger on me. So I've never had that experience before. It could happen anywhere, you know. I'm not pointing a race figure, you know, but I'd never experienced anything like that before except at Grambling. But... For the most part, I felt accepted. I, you know, do remember, you know, occasional name calling, maybe something innocuous like a white girl or honky or something like that. But for the most part, I found people good people. Basically, my, I believe people are good at heart. I had a, a interesting story at the student union. I was there, and this fellow asked if anybody wanted to play chess, and nobody volunteered. Well, I. I thought I knew how to play chess. Let's just put it that way. I knew how to move the pieces, but I did not know strategy. I had no idea there was strategy. <laughs> so anyway, so I said, oh, I'll play with you. 
So anyway, we set it up, and then everybody in the student union surrounded us. So I'm the only white face there. I knew that he knew that I knew that he knew within the first couple of moves that I had no idea what I was doing. He could have beat me probably in three moves, but yet he stretched that game out. He played for, I don't know, I, I don't know how long it was. It seemed like forever for me. And of course he beat me. Now I don't know if anybody that surrounded us who was watching the game knew that I didn't know what the heck I was doing or they didn't know either. Uh, but I felt very, uh, I felt a little humiliated at the time, but in reflection, I realized that he was being kind to me, dragging it out so that I didn't look so bad, which spoke, spoke volumes about that young man. Because oh, he could have trounced me and he could have boasted, oh, I beat that white girl and everything. He didn't do anything of the kind. You know, we just treated each other like two human beings, and I lost, and he won, because he knew what he was doing, <laughs> and a, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. What was some of the stuff that you did? Did you did you attend a lot of parties on campus? Did you attend parties off campus? Um, Most of the parties were were off campus. Okay. I don't remember they're having any on campus parties. I just may not have known about them. I did have a boyfriend on there, uh, and another. One of the exchange students from Eau Claire had a boyfriend who said she actually wound up marrying, and they're still married today. Do you happen to remember her name? That's Kathy Krauss. You generally felt, you know, fairly accepted socially on the campus. How about the Greek societies? Did you, were you a member of, of a sorority at Wisconsin? Did you participate in any, in, in any Greek life stuff at Grambling? No, um, yeah, I was kind of the hippie girl, so that wasn't really what hippie girls did. Okay. <laughs> well, that's fine. That's so, fine. No. Yeah. Not, ever, not yeah, everybody I did, did. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, though, that the fellow that was my boyfriend on campus did come to visit me a couple of times over the years. Uh, he wound up marrying and settling in Seattle. I think he was a school principal or something. Another fellow that I was friends with came up to visit me, I think that summer of 71. Anyway, he had family in Milwaukee, so we went to Milwaukee to visit his family. We went to a Milwaukee Bucks game, and we went to an after-party together where Lou Alcindor, who is known, more well-known now as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, attended that party as well. So I have a little claim to fame here. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so that was nice that it's, it's difficult after 52 years to remember, you know, how we maintain connections because this is pre-internet, pre-text, pre-email, yeah. pre-social media. It had to have been by letter, you know, or maybe phone call. could be phone calls too, but they were expensive. You know, talking long-distance calls. So I'm just assuming that that's, you know, got a letter or a phone call or something and how we made, you know, these connections after, you know, I after my stint was, was finished there. Did you feel that there was a, a significant difference in dating life at Wisconsin versus Grambling, or was it you know, kind of kind of similar? It's pretty similar. Okay. I think, you know, girls are girls and boys are boys. We all have the same human nature, which is uh, one of the things that I wish people in the world would realize. <laughs> yeah. You know, different, maybe cultural customs and that sort of thing. Like, just, this is, really personal but you know different 
races or cultures, you know, appreciate different things about the opposite sex. You know, I noticed, for example, that the black girls in the South, anyway, didn't shave their legs or underneath their arms. I mean, that was like, you'd never do that up north. <laughs> um, that could have been just a Southern thing. Because you have to understand that um, if you look at those, some of the exchange students, some of the black students from the northern campuses were exchange students at Grambling as well. But it, there's a difference between a northern black experience and a southern black experience. You know, it's a cultural difference. So, you know, it's different if you live in Boston than you, if you live in Dallas, Texas. You know, you may still be looked the same, you're, you know, but you have different cultural experiences. So, so there's that, and I think there's, that's a lot of the challenges people have is accepting and appreciating cultural differences, you know, regardless of what somebody looks like. So now, why don't we get to the food on campus? Everybody that I've talked to so far has always had something to say about the food on campus when they were there. Doesn't matter if they were there in the 50s or they were there in the 90s. Everyone has had something to say about the food on campus. So what was your experience? Oh, so we're talking about Southern food, okay? Uh, I had never had grits in my life or collard greens. I remember having the new thing was apple, apple raisin salad mixed with mayonnaise, which I never would have thought of doing, but tasted great. I don't remember eating off campus. That doesn't mean I didn't. I just don't recall that. But I, I, I'm a pretty... I pretty girl that pretty much likes anything. I didn't have a difficult time adjusting to them. I'm I'm willing to try just about anything. So I'm, you know, six foot tall girl, had a hearty appetite and you know, I chowed down on whatever they put in front of me and, and enjoyed every bit of it. So and I, you know, and when I went back home and was on my own, I actually you know, I make apple raisin mayonnaise salad, you know, for my family and cook grits. You know, collard greens, not so much. That's not my, you know, favorite thing. But, you know, I didn't dislike them. So the I, old thing of cooking uh, pork neck bones or pig's feet in your collard greens and your beans or something, you know, that was something that I'd never heard of before because I didn't live in that kind of a community. Do you remember if they featured, or, or if you had in another context, any traditionally southern Louisiana food, such as like jambalaya, gumbo, uh, red beans and rice, such as things of that nature? We probably had red beans and rice. I just, it doesn't stick out in my head. Uh, but not the typical New Orleans type food. I don't remember that. Uh, if I did, it may not have struck me as something that was particularly southern. But this is a black campus, so I don't know, you know, what was, you know, ca uh, campus food tends to be pretty, you know, mainstream. Should have asked you earlier, but uh, do you remember your your boyfriend's name? You said that you had stayed in touch with him for some time. Yes, his name was Sam Coleman. Did you meet him in class? I met him at a party. I was kind of a party girl back in those days, so, as you could tell. What stuck with you about your experience at Grambling when you returned home? Number one, I gained an appreciation for what it's like to be in the minority, to be the person that stuck out like a sore thumb, or maybe sore thumb is not the right word, but who, who stuck out, you know? You can't just blend in. So people are watching you, wondering, what are you doing here? This is, this is our place, you know? Why are you here? Those are unspoken things that I felt people were, you know, thinking about me. 
Whether that's true or not, I don't know. So being conspicuous and a little awkward and unsure so as not to offend people, I I remember that. It was good for me to be able to gain that appreciation of what others go through every day of their lives. And this was just six months or five months of my life. So that was crucial. And again, as I mentioned before, the importance, it just confirmed the importance of developing multiracial and multicultural uh, relationships with other people so that our lives are not so homogenous, not just hanging out with people that look like us or think like us. I think people are healthier when, when we surround ourselves with people that think differently, look differently, have had different experiences. So I have endeavored to live my life like that. In fact, my first out-of-the-college job was at an all-black junior college in Lynchburg, Virginia, as, a, as the head librarian. And that was, Lynchburg, Virginia was a whole other story. <laughs> that, was a, that was a cultural shock. And I was also, while I lived there, um, changed jobs as an elementary school librarian in a rural school post, just post-integration. So that was pretty fresh in the community. We had kids that whose families had been sharecroppers that were going to school, rubbing shoulders with the former descendants of landowners, that sort of thing. So that was a pretty new thing. And I, I remember driving to work, you know, it was about 20 minutes away from Lynchburg, seeing barefoot kids in raggy clothes coming from a well uh, carrying a bucket of water between the two of them. And this is 1972, still rural southern Virginia doing that. I spent a year there and then came back to Wisconsin and I've remained active in the political process to encourage people to choose candidates that understand the need for all types of people to have equal opportunities in life and I've been involved in charities that serve at-risk minority children in my local community and uh, tried to surround myself with people that I, you know, can that can change my mind about things that cause me to think about and take a different perspective on life. So I like to think that Grambling had a part in that. As we round up our, our interview here, have you ever thought about visiting Grambling again? You're well, not... I haven't, but when you asked me that question, I thought, yeah, that would be nice because I'll tell you, I have another story. I had family in Tennessee, and we were traveling back home. We were driving this time a couple hmm. Last, it was actually last May. Anyway, there was a fellow uh, who had a Grambling sticker on his car, and he was pumping gas. And but his had a license plate uh, was California. And I struck up a conversation with him, told him that I had attended Grambling as a young woman, and he said, "Oh, that's great." He said, and then I, you know, I asked him about himself, and and uh, then we parted ways. But the interesting thing is, compared to the other young man that I told you about it our beginning of our conversation. He didn't bat an eyelash and say, oh, you didn't go to Grambling. He didn't bat an eyelash at all. It was natural, oh, you went to Grambling, oh, great. So I'm guessing that Grambling has become somewhat integrated, because I'm an old white woman, he's a young black man, and uh, he would have been surprised if it was still all black at this point, which would be rare, actually, in these days. 
Grambling nowadays is is definitely you know we we are definitely an integrated school. It it is still significantly African American. Thank you so much for your time um, on behalf of Grambling in the History Department. Let me just thank you yeah. very much for your time. Well, um, well I'm I'm honored that you chose me to to call me, and I was honored to be participate in the program, and I would love to visit Grambling again. So I will give that some thought, and I will stay in touch with you. That sounds great. Uh, we'd be happy to have you. You've been listening to the Voices of Grambling, a digital oral history podcast, a production of the students and faculty of the Grambling State University History Department, along with faculty at the University of Arkansas. Be sure to listen in to one of our other episodes, and if you have a voice you would like to share or have a nomination for a voice that needs to be heard, please contact the History Department of Grambling State University for more information.